Listening Dog Media. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Offside Rule Exclusives. Eniola Aluko, England Centurion, a World Cup bronze medalist and three-time double winner with Chelsea and Juventus. A lawyer with a first-class law degree and the first female pundit on Match of the Day. She's also known by many as a whistleblower. In her new book, They Don't Teach This, she sets the record straight on her racism case with the FA and then England manager Mark Sampson. Eni joins us on the Offside Rule Exclusives to tell us more about the woman who fights for justice and won't take no for an answer. Joining myself, Kate Borsay and Robin Cowan here on the Offside Rule Exclusives, I'm so pleased to welcome Eniola Aluko, who I've known for quite a while. Do you remember, <laughs> Eni? I have, to, I have to drop this in right at the start. 2011. You came on the offside rule, and we did a podcast at the Women's Champions League final. I remember I ha- at Craven at Cottage. Chelsea. It was it? Oh no, Craven Cottage was it? I think it was Craven Cottage. I thought it was Chelsea. I did, but I looked it up. And, oh, okay, and I okay. think it was Craven Cottage. Yeah. But I always remember afterwards chasing maiden Chelsea stars around. Oh, because I think Spencer was, Matthews was there. We were running around with our phones. Yeah, oh, the so maiden funny. Chelsea guys are here. So it's a huge pleasure Thank for us to so speak much. to you and for me to speak to you too, because I've checked in with you at various points yeah. over the years and you're someone who I respect hugely and I have an inkling about the person that you are and I really like the person that you you are and what you stand for because you have many levels and many layers (laughs) and many identities which we'll talk about in this podcast. Your book, They Don't Teach This, is the reason why we're here and why we've been able to snaffle you. Tell us about the press reaction to it. Are you pleased with how it's been received? (sighs) It's been a bit of an eye-opener to be honest. I, I didn't write a book to be safe. I didn't write a book to make everyone feel good. You know, I wrote a book to talk about life and the honesty and the the reality of life as a black female footballer, successful. So I I expected a reaction. I wanted a reaction because I think that's that's what moves us. You know, when I read books, I'm moved by shocking things or things that are very, very visceral or very real. 
So I'm pleased that there's been a reaction and, and, and certainly that there's a lot of conversations being started. I think the difficult part is is the level of kind of saying at 32 years old, I've written a memoir about my life and people want to zoom in on one part. Yeah. Obviously, one part that has been very public and one that I'm always open to talk about, mm, which is the FA, which is the, the FA, racism case, which is the FA it. racism case. So I think that's what's been difficult. And just kind of the, the mechanisms of how the media works in the sense that, you know, Really, it's ultimately about the story and about the headlines, it, depending on who you talk to and which kind of organization it is. And ultimately, I, I, I find myself in moments where I'm like, did I have to write a book to talk about this? You know, I, that's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's already a story yeah. out there. So just run the story again. I don't need to come and talk about it. I'm here to talk about my book. So, so it's been a bit of an eye opener, and I, I, I joked actually that I should have left another chapter for the book to just talk about when the release, you know, because <laughs> it's been it's been a whole chapter in itself in three days. But ultimately, I'm just very grateful that I'm in a position to be able to have written a book yeah. and for people to take notice of it. And I hope that my intention behind the book, which is to talk about the lessons that I have learned good and bad and through difficult experiences through highs and lows will resonate with people and will be long lasting because yeah. the book is forever yeah. so I'm very very happy sat in front of you that you know today's release day and people are messaging me saying oh I've got my copy and that makes me so happy so you can't have it all good I guess it's you know there's been there's been difficult moments this week but ultimately I'm I'm super super yeah. happy do you feel it's hard to get people to understand that you're much more than the person who held the FA to account over racism. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I knew that that was gonna that was even if I didn't write a book, I think that's what some people think and forget that you know before Mark Sampson became the coach, I had eighty caps. I was a qualified lawyer, been on Match of the Day, I'd done many other things. But I think this is the way people think. You know, they like to box, mm. and I talk about it in the book. I talk about. You know, the idea of having hyphenated identity, hyphenated career. So I felt moments where, okay, yes, that was something that is very positive in my life in the sense I stood up for something. Mm. But also it was a very difficult time for me. And so and, and just, it actually went over a period of years. I think people yes, forget that it wasn't forget, that yeah. he said something racist and then you complained about it and then it went to went into investigation and that there was a tribunal along the way. I, I think when I read it, I was, I had to reacquaint myself with just how long yeah. that process was yeah. in that after he made the first racist remark, well, although there were connotations over, over several things, but in the investigation, they highlighted the fact that he'd made ill-judged attempts at humour, one of which involved making a comment about your family com coming over from Nigeria for a game and would they bring Ebola with them that was marked out as one of those racist comments but I think it's so difficult isn't it because from the point of that comment to his eventual apology to you that was five years yeah and that will give you some indication yeah, of years. how long yeah. and I talk this went on for I think I, I talk about that in the book that you know, I had that kind of realization as well. And, and, you know, the idea that one of the big lessons of the book is forgiveness. And like, I was challenged with the opportunity to forgive. It literally was like, okay, you can say it all you like any, that you're over it and, you know, you're forgiven, but let's see. And I was very angry for a long time. And I literally had to be like, listen, do you want to stay angry forever or do you want to get over mm -hmm. it? 
because of that length of time, because I kept quiet for so long. And so I hope that comes across in the book, because you're right, I think snapshots are taken and people just go, oh, it was a big story and, and forget all the stuff before that. Did you find writing it down as well helped process it a bit more? You've clearly had a yeah, lot of time yeah. to as well, but did that yeah, help? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and the, the ghostwriter, Josely Blonde, amazing in, in the sense that we spent a lot of time together. She came over to Turin. She interviewed me. She went to Birmingham. She saw where I grew up. She obviously had a, an, an idea of the case as well and, and, you know, all that stuff. But it was it was really trying to write it down in a very emotional way, in a very kind of visual way, so people can picture how it really does feel. The Offside Rule Exclusives. I do want to move on to a bit of the FA stuff and Mark Sampson, but I just want to talk about some of the emotional stuff around it as well and how... And how it made you feel. You had a you know, a really solid England career before mm, Mark Sampson yeah, arrived. Yeah. Let's not forget that. 80 caps. Tell us about your England career before. And we should say that you you know, you'd also been at Chelsea, you'd played over in the States as well. Yeah, You've been yeah. at Charlton in the early days. So you were a, a very established yeah. footballer before Mark Sampson turned up yes, on the scene. Yes. Just give our listeners a a little view on your England career before Mark arrived? Well, I made my debut when I was 17. I was one, one of the youngest ever players to play for England, you know, and, and eternally grateful to Hope Powell for that, for giving me that opportunity and believing in me and kind of always allowing me to study on the side and, and do that. And I started very early out and, and was the kid that, you know, scored sort of important goals for Charlton mm. and, and, you know, scored in cup finals and was that fearless striker. You, you had this electric pace, yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. you? You were so... so um, 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 you were so quick. <laughs> that was, that, but that was from a young age, wasn't yeah. it? Young and age, actually sometimes yeah. you didn't know what to do, do with, with it. it. Yeah, yeah, no, you're <laughs> right. Because you were so quick. You're it was right. like, oh, yeah. any. Yeah, 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 right. um, <laughs> but you were really exciting to yeah. watch and really exciting on that scene because I think Hope Powell's tenure was was traditional yeah it was sure. very set sure. um it didn't take a whole lot of risks Risk, yeah, and it yeah. relied on her relationships with senior players yes, yes. and along comes a bit of a disruptor yeah yeah no absolutely I think you've, you've summed it up perfectly I was kind of the disruptor in a, in a very traditional approach and I think Hope took to me you know because she knew that she knew that I came from a good background and she knew that I I was well-intentioned and she liked my speed but try to kind of mould it and home it in. And, you know, I talk in the book about Hope scolding me for trying to be too skillful at one point when I was younger. But, you know, very grateful to her for giving me that opportunity from very early on. And then it was just kind of like once you're in the system, you, you do your best to stay in it. And it was doing well at club. I was fearless when I was young. I was fearless. And it's actually something I've tried to tap into. When I feel like I'm not performing now, I go back to that how I was then that kind of you know free your mind mentality and yeah just kind of before you blink you've you've got to 80 caps you know and, and you so many great moments you know qualifying for the 2007 World Cup obviously playing in the Olympics the difficulty in 2013 before Hope got sacked and kind of all of a sudden the media were interested and we didn't really know what to do you know we'd been demanding for the media to take us seriously and then when they did we didn't like it so all of those experiences really got me to the 80 caps as a very experienced player in the team. Somebody that at that point was actually a bit of a spokesperson for the team, a representative for the team in terms of the central contracts, in terms of just saying, girls, like, 
some of you can't pay your mortgages. Mm. You know, I think that's important to point out that some women's football fans who may have just come in in the summer because it was a great tournament yeah, yeah. don't realise yeah. that the sacrifices like that they had to make and in your book you really highlight them that as you say they were losing money they had to take annual leave or unpaid leave to yeah. go to these tournaments I think a lot of people would find that absolutely shocking well that's that that was the reality for a long time and it went unchallenged for a long time we kind of just went well we're playing for our country that's great but the reality is that when you have senior players, as Kate, you said, we had many at the time. It was like, well, I can't keep taking unpaid leave. Can't necessarily pay my mortgage because I don't really have you know, that good of a job to, to, to be able to say, oh, well, it's OK. I won't get paid very good money. And paid so, to go on camps, Paid right? to go on camps. And so it got to the point after the World Cup, 2007 World Cup, where we got to the court fine. And it was like, hold on a second. Like, we're doing a lot here and we're not really, you know... So all of those experiences really got me to the point where I was a very experienced, very, I would like to think very well respected player, some, a player that other players would call me up and be like, oh, I really want to get out of my contract at a club. Can you help me? I'd be like, absolutely. You know, I loved that side of it. I loved that kind of helping a teammate out. And it's not just for your own club. It's for other clubs as well. So when Mark Sampson took over and I talk about it in the book, it, it, he made a very good impression on me when he first came in because he was like this brave fresh guy had a fresh approach no one really knew who he was and had you know this amazing approach to kind of tactics and adaptation which was very very different to hope so I think part of the problem actually when Mark came in was I was like hold on I'm an experienced player here and I feel like there's a lot of question marks around me when a new manager comes in everybody's kind of you know, judged in a way, um, and should be. It's a clean slate for everyone. But I think the levels of which you're judged is is what I had a problem with. Mm. I think I was being judged at way, way too high level for for the length of time he knew me um, at, at the beginning. And I think I say that in the book, that that's what really disturbed me a bit. I was like, why do you have such a strong opinion? Mm. And at the time, I'd scored like four goals in four games. I was on fire. Mm. So I was like, if anything, you should be like, you know. I think that was the thing that you, so you had a good first impression of him, but it was quite quickly that you kind of had a gut feeling that something wasn't quite right here. Yeah, just, yeah. just I think that that's really yeah. important because your gut feeling, your gut is so important yeah. in this, and that's that's you know. And a, I would encourage everyone yeah, to, to kind yeah. of take notice of that those feelings, those gut feelings. Many people will try and talk you out of those feelings because ultimately nobody can see ahead. But your gut sometimes can see ahead. So, you know, when you feel something that you think, oh, this doesn't feel right. Maybe because I'm, you know, because I sort of have that legal sort of mind. I noted it down. I wrote it down. I wrote an email to Adrian Bevington at the time. Mm. Not because I wanted to be a disruptor or a troublemaker, because I felt, okay, this doesn't feel right. And if somebody else feels like this that's not right either and we should explain that that, that email came after early on in Samson's tenure you watched on a on an analysis replay system one of your games and unlike in Hope's tenure the mics were left up on your yeah. various coaching team and Lee Kendall who was the goalkeeping coach made a remark about you being lazy as f mm. But your fitness levels were applauded by the by the fitness coach yeah, at in that, that time conversation. yes <laughs> and this comment appeared to come out of nowhere yeah. and it unsettled you and it unsettled your gut yeah. and you did such a clever thing 
yeah. by writing to Bevington, by yeah. by immediately starting to think this doesn't feel right. Yeah, exactly. Because, let's call this out from the very beginning, you felt that there were strong racial connotations yes. with that yeah. lazy as f- I, I do, yeah. I, I, I didn't unpack it in the way I've unpacked it in the book because I've taken time as well to reflect. And, and this is kind of just waking up and being a black girl or a black woman. Sometimes you're, you're kind of ultra defensive about just the casual things that happen because, you know, your whole existence is sometimes pitted in a certain way. So that laz- the laziest f- comment made me think, OK, that's an opinion. I can be lazy. You may think I'm lazy. But the reality is, is that I've heard other black people be called lazy and that was racist. So it's that question mark. Mm. I don't know what he meant. I'm not in his mind. But it's that question mark that you think, oh, God, like it could be that really unsettles you. But then it's that fear also of saying, if I say it, it's racist. It, it, people are going to say, well, you're just you're just using that. Mm. You're, 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 or they're going to have you down as a troublemaker. Have me down as a troublemaker. So there's that fear as well. So you, you bottle it up. Because ultimately, as a, as a footballer, you just want to play football. You just want to be picked. You know, I just, I've, I'd been picked for 10 years. I didn't want that to stop. Mm. Why would I wake up and decide to be a troublemaker after 10 years? And actually, Something was going on, yeah. you know? And, and actually, you weren't being picked as often as maybe you should no, have been. No. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, in the summer of 2014, so let's set the scene, Mark had been in, been in his um, tenure for about a year by then. You were England's most prolific striker. You'd scored goals every time you mm. played for England. You were running for top scorer in the qualification group for 2015. Yet he was still threatening yeah. to drop you. Yeah. And it was the language that was very... In- interesting because in these modern day football times you know we we know a lot about the psychology of dealing with players and different things work for different players in terms of threat of being dropped or being told that you need to improve etc but just explain why none of what he was saying was adding up none of it was making sense well I think from the beginning it was the question the question marks so you know every player had a one-on-one with Mark when he first came in, because he wanted an open door policy, and I think that's great. He wanted to kind of set the tone with with players and have an open door policy. But my conversation with him, I left with so many questions in a period when actually I, I should have felt more secure because I was scoring, which is my job to score. So that was the starting point. And as as me being me, I question and I question and I analyze and I self analyze. I look back and I think why and. Now, maybe that's a fault of mine, but it, it unsettled me so much that I, I, I was so nervous every time we had those one-on-ones. So when it came to my next one-on-one, it was, you're making it difficult for me to drop you. But and I it's thought... still, you know, again, negativity. It's negati- so it's a negative slant. Yes. Now, I have to say, a coach has every prerogative to pick who he likes. I don't want it to sound as if any Luco expects and has an entitlement to be picked. No, you could score 100 goals and the coach still might not pick you. And he has the prerogative to do so. But it's the it's the process of that, mm. that if it's so different to other people, there's a problem. And so everybody was, he was rotating the team a lot. And so 
I wasn't going to complain that I was not playing because every, everybody was being rotated. But it was those conversations that I thought, well, if I'm picked, you're kind of waiting for me to fail so you can drop me. So can you imagine the pressure? I'm already going in with pressure because I'm an England footballer who wants to score. You've then got the added pressure of knowing that actually, in a way, you kind of don't want me to do well because you want to justify it so that when I fail, it's like, aha. So that's what that conversation felt like to me. I was like, I left that conversation thinking, well, if I'm not perfect, I'm going to be dropped. That's really not conducive, is it, to trying to get someone to perform well? And I think, I think also it's, um, it's important to point out that pretty much every single meeting you asked him, how can I improve? Yeah, yeah. And he didn't was, really give you a straight answer. That was, always the, that was always what I kind of felt was the strategy. It's a beautiful irony in the sense that the most miserable two years of my life, or my career, were the two years I scored the most goals mm. for England. Would you like, f- there's something in that, yeah, right? But, but would you say that that was then Samson saying, well, masterstroke? Brilliant. I've actually managed that really well. And let's let's put to one side the racist remarks because that's one issue. The other issue is how you were treated within the team, how you were isolated within the team, and you felt that you were bullied within the team and that you, you were excluded. What happens if Mark Sampson turns around and says, um, oh, well, you scored the most goals of your England career during that period. So it worked, didn't it? I mean... Um it it worked to the extent that I did my job. Mm. It didn't work to the extent that I was a shadow of myself. So it's which way you wanna you wanna look at it. Your mental health. My suffered. mental health. And actually the ongoing damage afterwards. And the ongoing damage afterwards. So I mean it it, it depends on what what you see as important for footballers, right? You know, because we have this question mark and people go, Oh get on with it. You know, and, and in particularly in the men's game, it's, well, you're paid X amount. Get on with it. Well, no, that's a human being. Mm. He's, he's entitled to feel how he feels. And th- there's, there's this quietness around the conversation of mental health or conversation of well-being. Fortunately, I had a strong faith in God that I lent on and held on to for dear life during those times. Some people don't necessarily have that or aren't anchored in something. So it's, a, it's an amazing question, Kate, because... Yeah, he could turn around and say, well, that's what drives, you know, and that's what a lot of managers do. Well, I've got, I've got to give you the hairdryer to get the best out of you. That's not the best version of me. I'm just doing what I do anyway, but doing it sort of at a more, more rapid rate because I think that's the only way I can survive. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Jeffers. And we host the Series Linked podcast, all about the telly that's both on and in demand. We're able to tell you what you should be watching and what might be worth a swerve. Previous guests include Simon Cowell, Susanna Reid and Ricky Gervais. We speak to some of the biggest names in telly. Plus, we're compiling a definitive list of the box sets to watch before you die. Search for series linked on your preferred podcast app. The podcast for TV fans by TV fans. Let's timeline this forward a little bit. His constant talk about dropping you... Um, you felt very unsupported by him and also some of your teammates around that that period as well. The lead up to the Women's World Cup in 2015, which was for the nation a game changer, mm-hmm. wasn't it? It was a huge tournament. Yeah. And in the lead up to that, there was a friendly against Germany. And that's when he made the comment about your family coming from Nigeria and um, make sure they don't come over with Ebola, he said, which he has been found guilty of making a racist remark towards you. Mm. The first time, that was the first time you said that you experienced overt racism from him, yes. despite having that gut feeling, yes. having those question marks being raised 
earlier. We'll go ahead to the Cyprus Cup in 2015, which is the, one of the preparation tournaments before the World Cup, Women's World Cup tournament. You scored that amazing goal against the uh-huh, Netherlands yes. in the group stage. You, you know, that, that, that was one of your finest solo goals. We were getting these amazing performances from you. Mm. And I remember watching that, that tournament. I was out in Canada. Mm. I knew nothing yeah. about what you were going through as a player. Yet all we were told as press was that it was about Samson's togetherness. It was the team as a unit. It was this open door policy. And did they call it a circle of trust? Circle of trust. trust. Thank you. It was the awarding of your shirts between each other. So you would award a fellow shirt. I mean, this is, you know, straight out of lovey, huggy, feely, Brilliant. How brilliant. You know, we were we were led to believe that this was the most united yeah. team, England women's team, that there had ever been. Mm. You were a poster girl, yeah. Any. Yeah. You were your face was used to sell the World Cup commercially. Yeah. Yeah. How on earth does that sit with you now? Because you were used, you were used for financial gain for the FA, for the England team, for the sponsors around that game to help represent the game. Yet, yeah. in real life, by God, you were going through something. Yeah, I was. I was. And I and I didn't really, you know, I did that whole thing that footballers do and just like, oh, get on with it. Like, play, score goals, go home. But deep down, I was really struggling and, and really just was counting down the time all the time, counting down the days, avoiding Mark, avoiding some players who were kind of his trusted, that part of that circle of trust. But I think it speaks to, you know, what you see on the surface versus what you, what goes on behind closed mm-hmm. doors. There's always this sh- shrouded secrecy because the minute you you say or speak against the culture, you're you're a troublemaker. So a lot of players don't. So leading up to the World Cup, it was that kind of let's create a f- perception that this is the most together team, and for a lot of players it was. For a lot of players it was because they were they were loved by Mark Sampson. They had a great relationship with Mark Sampson. For a lot of players, it was. And I'm not going to sit here and say it wasn't for them. Mm. But everybody has a right to say what it is for them and what it is for for me. And so for me, I'd always kind of been the poster girl. So I was just doing what I'd normally done. So And I separated the FA from Mark Sampson. You know, Mm. the, the two are not the same. And, and, I, and a lot of the time I talk about the fact that one of the hardest things for me was because I had such a re- good relationship with the FA, who I did my first legal placement with, who I'd done multiple interviews for, who had a good relationship with press office, legal team. That's what made it so difficult when it came to the case. Mm. That's why I was always happy to be the poster girl because I'd always been, even mm. under hope. Can you give me... An example, or perhaps there is a moment that sums up how isolated you felt at that tournament. It was the game against France. Um, the opening game. The, the opening tournament. game against France. And actually, <laughs> tactically, physically, I was isolated. Tactically, I was isolated. I mean, yeah, it was, you were. It was, I remember. It was 4 <laughs> 5 1. Literally, any, if the ball goes up, you chase it and we'll, we'll watch you. <laughs> That's literally what it was. We were there watching this happen, and Lindsay. And that I. sounds like fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, look, it, it happens. You know, yeah. the manager's tactics are the manager's tactics. It's not for me to go, oh, well, you know. But it was a World Cup. It was the opening game of the World Cup. And because everything had happened before that, it was like, I felt like, okay, well, I was kind of being used to 
just be the girl that just, you know I think any striker would have been annoyed in that game to be honest with you because I did, you know didn't touch the ball so that game for me and I cried at the end of that game publicly and was asked on BBC why 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 are you crying why are you emotional and I lied and said oh no it's it's just because of the, we lost but actually it was it was months and months and months and months of me just feeling I've got to be perfect all the time mm. and me having this shot first game of the World Cup and putting so much pressure on myself and not touching the ball <laughs> and I was devastated and, and and that's what you know that's what all came out in that game mm. and that that was really isolating for me both on the pitch but sort of off the pitch as well. You had limited chances at that Women's World Cup in 2015. I think you played the first two, two games, games yeah. and then you didn't appear until, yeah, until the again medal. until the bronze medal match against Germany, which England won. And they, of course, left the tournament to high accolades, winning the bronze medal, which, you know, regardless of how you felt at the time, must you know, is still a huge achievement yes, and, yes, you know, absolutely. something to be massively proud of. Absolutely. You must have been exhausted, mentally yeah. exhausted at yeah. that time. Yeah, I was. <laughs> did you did you get support from your teammates? I'm just you know conscious that we've not really spoken Chelsea about teammates. Chelsea teammates or England teammates. How did did anyone in that setup help support you? Did you seek support or did you feel that yeah. actually by, by by asking for help or by asking for guidance from other players that might break this circle of trust thing? I think during the World Cup actually it was it, everybody was on a high and everybody was kind of bouncing off each other and coming back from the World Cup I didn't feel unsupported or I didn't feel like you know I didn't feel isolated in that moment because we could kind of all celebrate together. Mm. It was a collective achievement for players who hadn't played a minute versus players that played lots. That's kind of what the bronze medal was. It was kind of, oh, well, it was worth it in the end, depending on who you spoke to. If you spoke to Leanne Sanderson, she would have said the same thing. She played maybe five minutes in the whole tournament, something like that. And I remember having this conversation with Leanne and, and you know, to your point about feeling supported, there was many players, other players that felt oh, well, I didn't play. Mm. But that bronze medal was something to say, well, that's what made it worth it. So around that time, not at all, I didn't I didn't feel unsupported. And obviously family, friends, fans, everybody messages you and yeah. says, oh, well done. And they don't care whether you played or not. And everyone's you know. caught up in this moment. Everyone's caught up they? in the moment. So actually that was probably one of the biggest the highs. Yeah. This is the Offside Rule from Money Knees Media. Out of the blue, in 2016, you were asked to take part in a culture review for the FA called the England DNA. Yes. Typical culture review title. <laughs> and if you wanted, you could share your experiences. So you thought, okay, here we go. Come out of the blue. Have I been singled out for this? Have I not been singled out for this? And you're a bit like me, I think. If someone asks you for your opinion, yeah. openly invites you, and this was going to be confidential, yeah. your name wouldn't be put to any of this. Yeah you were going to give your opinion. Well, it, yeah, it, it, it was kind of done in a really nice way. Like, it was like, you're an iconic England player. Like, so it wasn't, it was made, it was done in a way where it was like, I knew not every England player was going to be asked because it was like, you're special. So I was like, absolutely, yeah, I'll, I'll happily be part of that. But within days, 12 days, 14 yeah, days? It was, it was 12 days. You yeah. were basically dropped yeah. from England. Yeah, yeah. And you've never played for them again? No. So what did you say? Did you did you share everything? We, we've obviously mentioned a lot of it today, but you shared everything, everything you all of your back. feelings, everything. And it wasn't a random conversation. The questions were very much, how do you feel as a black woman in the team? You know, I think people think that I just picked up the phone and, and, dobbed, just and dobbed him in, dobbed him in. <laughs> 
That's not how it happened at right. all. I was asked to be part of the review, firstly. Secondly, the questions made me think, okay, something's going on here. Yeah. And remember, and I think this is really important, I write this in the book, I had told Dan Ashworth prior to this confidential hearing that he oversaw, I had told him in America after the 100 caps, Dan, I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling. And this is in this Dan Ashworth of, Dan the FA. of the FA. So he knew mm. I was struggling. The same person who then oversees this review asks me to be part of it. And then the questions in that review speak to how I'm feeling in the team. <laughs> Too much of a coincidence. It's just, you know, so the questions were very much, how do you feel as a black girl in the team? Do you like the culture? You know, what's the culture of the team like? And remember, this was all based on, you know, the, the all blacks kind of leadership the All Blacks team spirit, you know, Mark wanted to very much cultivate that in the team. So it was all around team ethic, yeah. team, and mirroring individuals, that, that mirroring the All Blacks rugby that, how team. do you feel in the culture, culture review. So I was like, wow, something's going on here. This is my chance to actually try and change mm. something. I mean, I had the best intentions. I honestly thought, oh, this is great. Dan knows that I... I I'm not happy. He's asked me to be part of it. Now he's given me the opportunity confidentially to speak. Yeah. And you spoke confidentially to another person who was overseeing the yes. review. Yes. You then challenged Ashworth and said, why have I been dropped? And you were dropped for unlioness behaviour, yes, by the way, correct. which was a ridiculous... We're still not sure exactly what that is. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think basically what it means is that, you know, as a team, as part of this sort of circle of trust thing that, you know was kind of pushed out to the media a lot. We all agreed this kind of code of conduct that, you know, I found it quite patronising at the time. It was, and it was quite patronising for women too. It was very much like, you know, you must like each other and you must, you know, if you have a problem, make sure that you're not an energy zapper and all like, this kind of stuff. Like it, it wasn't, like a cult, it just Annie. wasn't. It sounds, it sounds like a cult. I mean, what? It just wasn't, it just, what for me, it just felt a little bit false. Yeah. And... Anyway, so, so so that was something that everybody agreed to. I'm not sure we had a choice, but we all agreed to it. And so online S behaviour was effectively, you know, other players have said you're not abiding by this code of conduct that you've agreed to. So it was very much kind of like... Who and that's were the, those other players? I don't know. Okay. And this is the bullying element that I talk about. This, this idea that in the back of your head, you feel like a whole group of people have sat there and judged you and said, we don't want her anymore. We don't want, you're not part of us anymore. And that was very much the language that, you know, was being used around me being dropped. It wasn't about football. So that's where I felt like, well, what do you mean? Can you point to things that I've done? They couldn't give you any evidence, could Not they? at the time. I mean, afterwards it all came out that, oh, any pulled Alex Scott's hair in 2013 in the training session to try and justify the decision. Right. But if you think about it in the last, what happened in the last four months of me being dropped surely that should be what we focus on not you know anything mm. else so that's that that's what online s behavior is you began legal proceedings against the fa for loss of income and of income. you started proceedings for an employment tribunal and within that within your case were the were the racist remarks and the feeling that that you'd been bullied and it never went to court it was 
settled for about eighty thousand pounds. You didn't receive all no, of it. No, it's of le- in the book. I, it's less than that. It's yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> because it because it ended up being less. But under the yeah. proviso that you didn't talk about the case or say anything derogatory about the FA, and you didn't receive that payment for loss of earnings, you received it as a mutual resolution. So in you know, yes. in other words, they didn't admit to it, but yes. they gave you this yes. money. There was then an inquiry led by Catherine Newton, barrister, and the first result of that investigation dismissed all of your complaints one by one. And I'm running through this now because I sort of want to set the scene and just allow people to remember the sort of different timeline of this. And then it all blew up in the media Mm -hmm. in 2017. And we heard a lot of different stories. Parts of your case the tribunal were leaked to the mail who didn't mention racism at all but yes. just mentioned this hush money payment and you decided to 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 tell your sto- your side of the story to Daniel Taylor so you set about trying to set the record straight but in the meantime you were also asked to go up ahead up in front of the DCMS committee so the digital culture and media and sport committee and only when the threat of that was coming up so only when the threat of you going to parliament and sitting in front of MPs and explaining why this was being so bad handled by the FA who dismissed all of your complaints who made a complete hash of trying to wiggle themselves out of this and I won't go into all the details because it's tenuous but they dealt with it really really badly at the time only then did you receive the results of the second investigation by Catherine Newton who found that he'd made those racist remarks you gave your evidence you also got a written apology from the FA as well how do you feel about the FA after that was justice done in the end I mean, look, I, I got an out-of-court settlement to cover my loss of earnings. Mm. So, effectively, I won my case. Despite feeling like, you know, people will always see me as the girl that, you know, went up against the FA. And, and I have to, you know, I'm never going to be comfortable with that because, you know, my whole career is bigger than that. So, I won in some aspects and I won in feeling vindicated that I wasn't a liar, that I wasn't somebody that was playing the race card. Mm. I won in that aspect, I think. And I think I won for many other girls who come after me, who, you know, feel that they can't speak up. We've seen around the world in women's football, many, many other players and many other teams coming to the point where they're saying, this isn't good enough. And I'm very much part of that conversation. So so I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, that case, I haven't come out good out of that case in some ways. But it was disturbing, you know. The FA for me, and, and, and I'm very conscious of, of not just keep saying, the, the case was dealt with by six, seven people in the FA who happen to be sort of big decision makers, but they're not the entire FA. And so it's unfair, you know, this is why at the time I didn't want to label and say, oh, the FA is institutionally racist, because who are we talking about? Who who is? <laughs> it's a big organisation who I've had a great relationship for a long time. So in terms of how I feel about the FA, of that episode was awful, really awful. Yeah. But I came out of it, you know, with an outer court settlement. I came out of it with a lot of empowerment, with a voice. I found my own voice. And I came out of it learning about myself and learning that actually when you're ready to sacrifice your career for something that's powerful 
so that was a big challenge for me. So, so how I feel about the FA, the long answer is it, it's fine. Um, it's I've, done. I, you know, it's done. I was part of sort of moving the whistleblowing procedures on, whistleblowing policies on. I've tweeted many times about the FA being brilliant in what they're doing with the FAWSL. I think what they're doing is great. You know, I'm okay with, you know, even with the players, even with a lot of the players who fundamentally I, I don't respect what they, you know, their stance and their silence not about any Luca, but about racism. I don't respect that at all. But I'll be the first person to, to be a media pundit and say, Lucy Bronze is the best player in the world. Or Steph Houghton is the best player in the world. Or, you know, I'm okay with that. Because at the end of the day, I can separate the person and the player. And I've done that. I've done that multiple times since the case. So I'm okay. I'm good. I've moved on. I'm happy to kind of be open to opportunities to work with the FA again. Yeah. And that's what's great about the book is that well, is that it's chapter closed for you. Yeah. And I think yeah. now it's it's chapter closed for a lot of us in the media I too who so. needed yeah. to be reminded yeah. about what you went through and what's that what that has since achieved and Mark Sampson was sacked it wasn't because of the racism he was found to have behaved inappropriately whilst he was manager of um, Bristol City women. And he's moved on. And you know, he's, he's moved you know, on. He's got and he's moved on. And, and he's apologised. And he says he's, you know, worked on, yeah. worked on some of the issues dealt with. But just moving on to obviously racism in football at the moment is a very hot topic, mm. especially in social media, which we'll ask you about in just a minute. But I'd like to know, John Barnes a few months ago gave an interview about he feels that racism is just inherent in society. I know when going back to Lee Kendall when he made the lazy comment I think you said it's not it's not necessarily make him a racist but it's these sort of innate yeah. stereotypes yeah. that yeah, are ingrained in society would you agree with that yeah absolutely it's that casual that casual racism that's learned learned language or learned behavior or that sort of idea that others are inferior to you that those comments come out so there needs to be a gear change within society as to how racism's perceived. And is that will that then filter on to the fact that people, you know, players like Marcus Rashford and Paul Pogba are, are receiving and a whole load more players are receiving mm. racist tweets, racist messages on, on social media. It's not about pinpointing specific people who are making those racist comments. And yes, you can do that. And yes, they should be banned for life, etc. But it's actually a much bigger issue. Why are we targeting individuals? And yes, it's right that we do. But we're ignoring the fact that this is that it's a societal thing. It's it's endemic. Look, I don't think we're going to get rid of racism. It's been there from the beginning of time. And it's a survival instinct in some ways for people. And it's a fear, you know, you fear what's different to you. So I don't think we're going to get rid of it. But I think that What's going to happen is, is that at the moment on social media, if Paul Pogba makes a mistake, it's on the tip of people's tongues to be racist. It's like, it's a license. Mm. You've got to take that license away. Hard, you know. So Twitter, I don't believe that they don't have the controls to know who these people are. I don't believe that they can't control it more. They absolutely have the technology to do so. You know, racism should be serious. It's a hate crime. You can't walk down the street and say what you say to Paul Pogba on Twitter. So these things need to come in. And, you know, to your point about it being not just an individual, you know, I've, I've spoken about it many times this week. I believe stadium closures can come in into the Premier League. It sounds controversial, but it's not because it already happens. 
in in Eastern Europe. It's already happening, and we're already we're very good at reporting that when it happens, when it's not on our doorstep. But racism is happening on our doorstep in our stadiums. I just so, out of interest, how often do you get racist tweets? Would you say? I mean, I I, I don't want to sort of put it, a number on it, but like Quite now often. and again, yeah. I mean, now and again. Sometimes if I search my, I mean, people don't necessarily at me and, and do a, it yeah yeah but if you search yourself you'll see racist stuff what did you think of phil neville's idea of boycotting social media because on the totally football show carl anker said that was a, he, i oh, think yeah. his exact word was asinine i think it's a great idea i think yeah. it's a good idea i think you know anything that's gonna like make the the, the platforms think okay this is gonna affect our users this is going to affect our platform this is going to affect our sponsors or whatever it may be i think needs to happen and and players have a huge platform there's millions and millions of people that follow football players so i think i don't think it's a bad idea at all it's a protest it's a form of protest you are at juventus in your first season you won the double yes with the side yes you're the side's top goal scorer yes that's amazing and it's great vindication mm-hmm. when it all boils down when all of this noise is put to one side it boils down to the fact that you are a footballer you are a talented footballer and you're enjoying your career you've also done some great bits of punditry yeah you know despite all of this fa investigation going on and all the racism charges too you were you know being a pundit at tournaments the men's euros in france the men's world cup in russia the women's world cup that we've just had over in france is punditry something that you're going to be looking ahead to? What's next for Oh, you? I love it, Kay. I love the punditry. It's so fun. I, 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 you know, so often I'm like, this is a job. Like, <laughs> this is amazing, you know? And then you go on air and you talk about you, the passion, your passion. You talk about football, you know? So I really love the punditry stuff and I'm, I'm so grateful that I've been given the opportunity to do it both in men's and women's football. The men's stuff has been great um, in terms of people hopefully realizing that punditry is punditry whether you're a man or a woman and me being part of moving that conversation on and so I would love to do continue doing that what about the legal side of all those all that study you know playing yeah. playing and studying at the playing same time here tough. and over in America I mean that that was insane with little sleep coming I'm, out with a first class degree <laughs> I think I'm going to use that skill I, I mean working for a law firm I think I've done that and I realized that that's not necessarily what I want to do but I think using legal skills in a football context I think is really fascinating for me I just finished my master's at, uh, with UEFA so I did a master's to learn how to become a sporting director that's, that's something on yeah, your agenda. that's something on my yeah. agenda. And I think something a lot more females can do in, in men's game, in the men's game or in football, full stop. I, I've never been one to go into coaching, I don't think. I've, I've never sort of thought I could be a good coach, but definitely somebody who can oversee legal, commercial, you know, recruitment, setting culture, I'm really passionate about. So hopefully, you know, in the, I, I do think I'm at sort of the end of my career now. I've probably got maybe one year two maximum left to play if that um because really? i'm you think yeah. this, this might be your last season might be my last season exclusive <gasps> exclusive um <laughs> and i'm very okay with that yeah. you know and some of my mates have just retired you know kaz carney and, and claire rafferty and, and i asked them like sort of how quickly did you know and they were like we knew like six months before announcing you kind of get this feeling that okay it's time and I, i'm kind of at that point now particularly with writing this book there's a lot more going on sort of in the transition phase for my next career than there is you know, putting balls in the back of the net. 
And so I almost, I almost feel like I'm ready to move, to move on, transition. And then you start, your body starts to feel it. Like I'm starting to get niggles and obviously I'm away from home as well in Italy. So yeah, I'm at the end. I'm at the end of my career and, and, and we'll see. We'll see. I think, I think, uh, I, I never like to preempt stuff, but you know, put it this way. I'm excited about, you know, the future. I'm excited about the many things I can do. I'm excited about this book. And just sort of having interesting conversations that can hopefully resonate with people. So, yeah, really, really excited. Well, Annie's book, They Don't Teach This, and we've learned a lot today, haven't we? Blimey. <laughs> um, they Don't Teach This is out. Do yes. read it. Both Robin and I have read it. I was up till 2am reading it because I couldn't stop reading oh, it. I really loved so it. I thought it was it, it's just you. a really easy read. And also, you know, if you have teenage nieces, nephews, mm. daughters, sons, please give it to them as well because it's Absolutely. actually a book that they can read to get a true sense of justice and it also hits on so many other topics beyond football like mental health, like feeling that you're isolated, that you're left out, like you don't quite fit in Identity. Identity issues yeah, it, it strikes you know a, a, a huge plethora of different issues and different topics to cover. So Eni, thank you so much thank for talking you. to us this here on the is, Outside Honestly, rule. this has been I think my favourite interview. Thank <gasps> oh, you so much. You've done a few, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I've done a few. But, you know, it's just, and it helps that we've known each other for a long time. But I really appreciate just, you know, you reading the book and not just a chapter of the book, but you reading the entire book. Because these conversations help me too and just kind of, you know, enjoying the book and having this conversation. So thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to this week's Offside Rule. If you're interested in more of our exclusives like this, then check out our conversation with Manchester United manager Casey Stoney and England legend Kelly Smith, where they also discuss their careers and time in the England camp. We'll be back next week with more. Until then, keep up with everything we're doing on social media at Offside Rule Pod. Until next time, goodbye. The Offside Rule is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.